This is Shelley Pikett, and that's my song, Bitch. Well, the one I wrote with Meredith Brooks. I tell all about how it happened in Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, a memoir about my adventures and misadventures on the front line of the songwriting business. You can also hear about Christina, Brittany, Keith Urban, and many more. But my book isn't just about songwriting. It's about passion, pursuit, perseverance for any dream you may have. Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, available on Amazon or at a bookstore near you. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicki's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon. Vicki wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon. Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. Vicky's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicky. Welcome to The Road Taken, a treasure map to success, where we talk to people who've managed to manifest their desired destiny, who were living their dream, and in some cases, beyond their wildest dreams. We'll be discussing the choices they've made, which have brought them to where they are today, where they still hope to travel, and the tools and lessons they've amassed along the way. And maybe somewhere in there, there's a nugget for those of us still seeking. The right words at the right time. I want to introduce you to Justin Levins. He's producing the show, my sound engineer. He won an Emmy Award, which is crazy, for the Foo Fighters Sonic Highways. Hey, Justin. Hey, Vicky. So, Justin, a lot of the reason that this show kind of morphed, manifested, let's say, boy, I, I'm using that word a lot, is because like 
13 years ago, I was in a writer's meeting and this woman was the speaker at the meeting and she was saying that three years prior, she was a toothless, homeless junkie living in her car. Her kids had been taken away from her, but she looked like really fabulous sitting in front of the room. And she said, and I just came from the premiere of my independent feature film. And I was like, what? How did you do that? And she said, five minutes a day. She said, I made the commitment when I was in prison that I was going to write five minutes a day. And she said, I did that every single day. And some days that five minutes turned into five hours. Sometimes it was eight hours. Sometimes it was just five minutes, whatever she had the time for. But she said that over the course of the next couple of years, she managed to write that independent feature. And then in the next year, she, she shot it when she got out of prison. And then she had this movie debut. And... For some reason on that day, I was ready to hear that. And that doesn't always happen. You know, I, I can hear the same thing over and over and over again. But it's about hearing the right words at the right time when I'm ready to hear it, when I'm open to it, or when it's just kind of meant to be. I'm a fatalist anyway, so I kind of believe that things unfold as they're supposed to and as they're meant to. And I, I do believe we have destiny. Do you believe in destiny, Justin? Yes, I do. Do you? Yeah. And do you feel that, like, when certain things happen in your life, do you feel like, I've just had a moment, like, this was meant to happen? Has that happened to you? Yeah, I definitely believe that uh, it's kind of, our lives are very, everything uh, happens for a reason. Whether it's the good or the bad, it was meant to happen that way. You know, it's it's interesting that you say that about the bad, because I've also kind of found that every bad thing that happens, something good always ends up coming out of it. This sounds like a really stupid example of this, but I've really found that losing a job, like losing a lover, anything that happens that sort of ends and seems catastrophic, something better seems to come after that. Have you Yeah, ha- yeah, that had- t- that tends to that tends to be the case for me as well. Um, it, I feel like it doesn't always work out that way, but I definitely feel that that's happened a lot for me where the bad has ended up turning into something good. I, I'll be honest with you. I can't think of one time that something like really horrible hasn't happened that, well, except aging. I have not (laughs) found the upside to aging that, that, um, although I'm still around. So there's that. And I guess there's the wisdom they say that we gather, which I'm still waiting for, but (laughs) Yeah, I, I really think that's true. And so I, that's a lot of why I wanted to do this show. Um, because, well, not the bad turning into the good, because hopefully this is going to be all good. <laughs> but but it's about being at the exact right moment to hear that exact nugget of truth. So we're going to have a lot of celebrities that are going to come in here, and they're going to tell us their stories, and they're going to tell us how they got there. Maybe some of them were encouraged as kids. Maybe some of them weren't. Maybe some of them got famous, or I don't even want to say famous because it's not about fame as much as it is about success. I'm interested in success, and that can be a lot of things. So we're going to talk to people whose names we might not know, but they're leaders in their field, or have managed, even if they're not leaders in their field, maybe they're just living their dream, because that's really what I'm chasing here. And having those right words at the right time, somebody might say something that might spark somebody out there at just the right moment to help them get to the next level, to push them through, to give them an idea of of a new way of looking at something. 
And I think we can look at people's success, you know, the road taken. I see it as a map to success, different people's maps to success that, yeah, like something just might spark somebody on any given day. And I know that like my toolbox, I have what I call my, my spiritual toolbox, which is kind of like how I get through every situation, how I get through any given situation, I should say, um, that I go to when I remember, because I don't always remember, but when things happen that are challenging, oh, wait a minute, you know, I'm trying to push somebody around, I'm trying to control something, that's not going to work, or um, trying to get my way when I need to put my ego aside and just listen and, you know, stuff like that. And, and I think the more tools we have in our toolbox and the more we hear each other's tools and amass more tools ourselves, the more armed we are to have success and to think of a new way of looking at something that maybe if we've hit a wall, maybe somebody else's experience will get us to the next place. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm shooting for here. That uh, sounds great. Well, the first thing we're going to do, we have to have fun, Justin. That's first oh, and foremost, sure. always fun. For sure. <laughs> and um, and we're going we're gonna to talk to actors. We're going to talk to musicians. We're going to talk to restaurateurs. We're going to talk to all kinds of people who are living their dream and hope that that uh, helps us get to where we are. J- Justin, you've won an Emmy Award. You're like, you're like a kid. How old are you? I'm uh, 29. 29 years old, the man has won an Emmy Award. An Emmy Award um, for the Foo Fighters Sonic Highways. So uh, how did that happen for you, Justin? Um, Short version is uh, I've been in this industry for like uh, nine years now as a sound editor, sound mixer, sound designer. And uh, I had a friend from a studio that I used to work at. And uh, I was just um, basically trying to make my move to the next level Mm -hmm. uh i kind of just been doing a lot of reality stuff at the time and i really really want to get to the uh, movie side of things and um you know i also wanted to get into like more scripted tv and all that kind of stuff um so i reached out to anybody i knew uh who was kind of on that side um and i got a response back from um you know this buddy of mine and he was basically like, I could use your help for a show coming up. Um, and it's Dave Grohl's <laughs> show. Oh. Uh, and I was just kind of like, yeah, I will definitely do that. Were you like one? He wasn't looking like jumping up and down and like waving your hand. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh my God. What yeah. a score. Oh, it was, it was fantastic. Um, again, like just kind of like we were talking about it. It was just, uh, just something that happened that was just i don't know how it happened but it was amazing but know? kind of uh, since we're both fatalists yeah. kind of your destiny you yeah meant it, was to walk in? To, it was supposed to happen absolutely uh, i was supposed to call him that day for some reason and well for the reason of working on that show and uh it happened and so do you do you have a plan in mind for how or, or see i because i've learned the hard way, the very hard way, that when I try to plan things out, nothing ever goes according to plan. Like if, if I have like a five-step plan, you know, I get to step one and a half and everything changes, you know, something yeah. gets thrown in the mix that I hadn't anticipated. So for me, I found that having like the big goals and then having absolutely no idea how I'm going to get there and just to put like one foot in front of the other and 
be really present and when I'm at my best and try to let things unfold and to trust the process that it's going to unfold the way it's supposed to. That's in the best of all worlds because (laughs) most of the time I actually worry like crazy. I overthink everything. And for me, I get in so much trouble when I'm inside my head. You know, I come to my best decisions and solutions when I stop thinking. And when I just, for me, it's about taking action, stopping the thinking, and just allowing things to unfold. Because if I try to think myself into a right action, I'm going to do the wrong thing. You know, I'm going to overthink it. I'm going to start questioning myself. I'm going to, you know, all of a sudden fear is going to get all wrapped around everything. And, you know, this is kind of all spiritual, but for me, if I'm in faith and coming from a place of love, everything is okay. But that's a really hard place to be. So I need my toolbox to be really solid and have lots of tools in there. And I need a lot of reminders to use it. And so hearing people's stories and how they did it and what they do is like for me, the biggest learning experience for me. I learn more from hearing about other people's journey than I do from anything else. Because if somebody is forthcoming, they're going to say where where it failed, where they had a difficulty, where they ran into a wall, how they got past that wall, you know, yeah, or how to or how to succeed. And absolutely, <laughs> what 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 step after another step after another step got them to succeed? Did they have a plan or did they have goals? Were they trying to control everything or were they letting things go? Um, because I guess for different people, it's going to be there's going to be different answers to that. Oh, for sure. And, you know, also how much support, how mu- you know, what drives people Does support get. I think some people have success because they were so supported as kids by their great parents. And I think some people have success in spite of not having that, you know, because they didn't have it. And sort of this, um, I'll show them, you know, I'm going to prove, you know, I think there's some of that too that happens. Yeah. So all of those journeys are fascinating and informative. So I hope we get to do, we're going to get to do a lot of that here. So it's kind of thrilling to me because that's living my dream. So I want to say thanks to Cyrus Webb and Conversations Radio Network for the platform to fulfill my long-held dream. This is so great for me. Louise Palanker and Ridge Rock Studios, home of Journals Network in the happening Hollywood Hills for sharing their incredible studio and for sharing you, Justin Levins, with me, producer extraordinaire, Emmy-winning sound engineer for the Foo Fighters Sonic Highways. If you guys haven't watched that, you must. It's incredible. I want to thank Bernard Fowler and Frank Hausen for the great To Thyself Be True, which has been a favorite song of mine ever since I heard it. Frank wrote it. Bernard sings it. Bernard, if you don't know, has been singing with the Stones for like 30 years. He's incredible, still singing with them. Has his own CD that just came out. He's extraordinary. We're going to have him on the show to talk to him. Kathleen Wilhoit um, for adding the Vicky to Tony Basil's iconic Mickey. Thank you, Kathleen. And Mickey is a perfect lead-in to our guest. If you're a Monkees fan, and who isn't, he's Mike to you. If you know him from Facebook, he's Michael. And if you know him personally or long to, it's Nez, an iconic maverick who had a hit song before anyone knew any of those names. He went on to originally be 
what we considered the real musician in the man-created pop sensation, The Monkees, who ruled the day back in the day on TV as much as on the radio, and who right now, 50 years later, had the number one Amazon hit and charted at number eight on the Billboard Top 100. I mean, that's crazy. Anyway, he kind of birthed country rock, MTV, and virtual live events. Welcome, Nez. Thanks for being my first guest on my first show. I'm so thrilled to have you. Okay, good luck with it. So, Nez, we have some shared history, which we'll talk about a little later. But what I, what I want to start with with you, I don't know how many people up, out there know your history. I know a little bit of it. Texas, you started out in Little Kid. At what point did you know you wanted to be an artist, a musician? Did you always know? Well, I don't know that I had it defined like that. No, I, I didn't. You know, um, no. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, it was a long time coming. I knocked around and did a bunch of stuff that didn't satisfy and didn't seem to be uh, where I wanted to go. And where I wanted to go, it didn't seem like I, I could go, but uh, those desires were fleeting. just, you know, came and went. Can you so give was, us an I example? Was, yeah, you know, like when you're nine, you want to take ballet and you want to be in the <laughs> New York Ballet. And then when you're nine and a half, you want to race cars. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Like that. It was all over the place. It did with me, anyway. And so when did music come into the deal? I guess it had been there all along. Music was a really important part of my young life and being, when I was a tiny kid, just a toddler, the first thing I remember is music. And I remember how it made me feel, and it makes me feel the same way today. So it's been, I guess it's been the same, in the same spot the whole time in my thinking. And what kind of music did you listen to when you were a little kid? What did your mother expose you to? Well, I don't know that she exposed me to anything. I don't ah. remember that. I remember finding some records over at my great aunt's house, and I remember a guy who played the organ in the storefront of a music store. He played it so that you could hear it in the parking lot. Now, you know, I would go there and stand there and listen to it. <laughs> and I remember I was paid in records from a music store that I worked at, and they were when the big hole 45s just first came out, so that was a lot of early rock and roll where I heard most of the early rock and roll from, you know, starting with Chuck Berry to uh, Fats Domino and just all of the players at the time. I crossed over into, when I say I crossed over, you sort of listened to the same thing when you heard country music and when you heard hard blues music or what they call race music. And they all melted together. So I ended up with this kind of um, strange amalgam. I say strange in that it, there's not obvious connection between the guy in the music store playing Tico Tico and, uh, and Jimmy Reed playing Bright Lights, Big City. But that's what I... That's what was going on in my head. But the thing that was curious to me was that it all sounded alike. I mean, it was just all wonderful. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't have much of a, didn't make much of a distinction. There was music on the Bozo records that I listened to that you had to turn the pages of a book when he honked a horn. Nice. Yeah, I remember Bozo. That was like the late 1800s, I think. <laughs> you know, music was, was sort of everywhere like it is now, and you just folded together. But what I remembered about it was that music was the thing that made me feel good. So I thought, well, if it makes you feel good, do it. And that's a perfect nine-year-old philosophy. You get out of that pretty quick when a few of those things blow up in your hand. But <laughs> at nine, that was fine. And so when did you start to play it yourself? When I was 20. No, come on. Really? Yeah, I tried to play the saxophone. That didn't work. First of all, it was too heavy, and I didn't like single lines. I couldn't understand the theory of music. You know, I didn't have any idea about scales and so forth. I wanted to sing songs and have big chordal pads that I could sing over, and I didn't discover that until I started playing the guitar. And I didn't start playing the guitar until I was 19. 
And were you self-taught? Did you take lessons? How did that happen? I'm completely self-taught on all fronts. I say this and, and people say, oh my, how prodigious and isn't that great that you could teach yourself and so forth. I do not recommend it. <laughs> Why is that? Well, autodidact is a tough way to go. You know, just imagine being an autodidact sitting in the cockpit of the space shuttle. <laughs> and that'll give you some idea about the, you know, how daunting it is. It's, uh, and if you get it wrong, you die. I mean... <laughs> There's a lot of downside to autodidact. Yeah, hopefully if you're playing guitar and you don't do it well, you don't die. So you start playing at 19, and at what point are you writing your own music? Not long after. Immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't read music, so if I was going to play a song, I had to make it up. So I did. You know, it was pretty simple stuff, and they tended to be plaintiff and kind of melancholy, like they still are, and that that was a way I could sort of entertain myself. I was very surprised to find out that other people were interested in hearing them and would sit there and listen to me while I played them. Okay, so let's talk about that. So did you start to play for you, and did you have a plan? Well, keep in mind, I was 20, right. so I went back to the school I was going to, San Antonio College, mm-hmm. took my guitar with me, and it wasn't like it is today, where everybody kind of has a musical instrument around or plays a little something here and there. You know, to have a musical instrument that you carried around with you was a little bit different yeah. than uh, the, the average guy. So I would sit in a student union or sit around classrooms before class and so forth, and I would noodle, but I couldn't play a song. And then invariably somebody would come up and say, play something for us. And I would play something that I was either made up or had uh, been practicing. And they would say, oh, that's good. You, can you play anything else? Usually the answer was no. I mean, <laughs> didn't have much of a repertoire. Were you picking things up off the radio, and were you playing like Chuck Berry and stuff like that? No, no, I couldn't figure that stuff out. I had no way of understanding it. I didn't. I could sort of understand the Kingston Trio. See, by this time we're talking folk music. Okay, yeah. And I could sort of understand those songs. And there were some people around who played, and I would say, "Can you show me how you do that?" And then they'd say, "Sure," and then they would play it for me. Then I would make a step ahead, and then they would play a song. I say, "Oh, that's a great song. Can you tell me who?" Where did that come from? They said, well, it's an old folk song. And uh, then uh, they would teach it to me. And you know, then they would say, and, and there's 27 verses to the song. Jeez. <laughs> I, would learn the, I would learn the song where he murders his bride and then where he gets hung. <laughs> Just that kind of stuff. And it was, it, was, uh, it was very simple, very direct. And it was a joy to me because I was able to play and do the things that had always made me feel good. But I didn't feel as if I was a musician, and I didn't feel like I was on my path to becoming a musician, or I can't wait till I get up and do this. I didn't have any of those ideas. I was just doing it because it was a good time passer, and it was recreational, and it was, I enjoyed it. So that was, those were the only things that made it work for me. Okay, so your first song, I'm assuming that your first hit was Different Drum. How did that happen? That was uh, just before I the television show that was when i was 24 and how was the appreciation of your early music did people get you right away well i started playing the guitar when i got it my parents gave it to me and i started playing it by just banking 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 on one string you know <laughs> and i thought i got to do something more than this so I, I taught myself a couple of chords by looking at the chord diagrams in a book mm-hmm. and <clears throat> as i played those i heard the music in them and that was pleasing to me and in a way it was exciting to me and then I would sort of recite poetry over the top of them, and that was basically the song. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty day outside, it's a pretty day inside, it's a pretty day all around. There, there's your song. And you just sing that over and over, and you like that, and you just do that. Do you remember what your first song was? No, I don't. I wrote all the time, but you know, it's not like Beethoven sitting down with a quill pen and, you know, <laughs> romantic like that. It was, it was just me sitting somewhere with the guitar going dump, 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 dump on the guitar and sort of singing a song over the top of it. I 
didn't sing much better then than I do now. And I mean, I sing better now than I did then, but I didn't sing very well. And I was just, you know, entertaining myself. So the fact that people would come and sit around while I sang showed me about the power of music. It sure didn't tell me anything about the power of me because I didn't feel like I was really doing anything. And by that, I don't mean I was therefore channeling God. I mean, I didn't feel like I was doing anything except sitting on a bench somewhere plucking on a guitar. It's like you're sitting there eating a sandwich and somebody comes up and says, do you mind if I sit here and watch this? And, uh, yeah, I'm just eating a sandwich. Yeah, but you just do it so well. <laughs> really? Yeah, well, what kind of sandwich is that? I don't know. Did you make it? Yeah. What is in there? Um, that's a tomato and two slices of white bread. Oh, that's so good. Actually, it's not all that good. It's just a tomato and two slices of white bread. Oh, and you you eat it so well. Really? Yeah. Would you mind coming and, and eating that for our party? We're having a group over. It would be great if you would come and, and have a sandwich at our party. Well, I... I eat sandwiches all the time. I'd be happy to come to your party. Is there going to be some interesting people there? Yeah, there'll be some people there. And we'll give you $100. Oh, really? You give me $100 to come eat sandwiches at your party? Yes. Would you come? Yeah. Are you kidding? Of course I will. Is there any particular sandwiches you would like? Well, what kind of sandwiches do you make? The tomato sandwich is kind of the only one I have. <laughs> I'm making myself laugh because that's how simple it was. I mean, wow. it, was, it was just a, it was a, it was, it was crazy simple like that. And so the first job I got was 10 days after I got my guitar. Oh and you my see, God. that sounds prodigious as, no, 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 no. It, it's, I'm telling you, it's not, it's not, it, it sounds prodigious. It wasn't. What was going on was I didn't have anything to do during the day because I just had a couple of classes. Mm -hmm. So I'd sit in my room and I would just play the guitar. Well, you do that for 10 days, you get got 100 hours on the guitar. So you can actually play at that point. I figured out by that time I went from two chords to like 12. And so how many songs did you have for your first gig? I had uh, probably, I don't know, I had five or six. Well, I had as many as I wanted yeah. because I would just sing anything I wanted to sing. You know, I could just open, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson's book of poetry and just start singing. Wow. But the first job I had was for nurses, and they were having a graduation banquet or something. And there was like 12 of them in the room, 12 or 15. Mm -hmm. And they said, would you come play for our party? And one of the nurses who was going to go to it was sitting there watching me eat a sandwich, a couple of other people. So would you come and eat a sandwich in our room? And I said, yeah. yeah. And they said, we'll pay you, and you can have dinner. <laughs> and I thought, this could be good. This could be very good. So I went, and it was nurses. And before I sang, I had, I had to tune the guitar, so I said something kind of about the dessert, and everybody laughed, and I thought, oh, there's a sound of understanding. That's communication. Mm -hmm. So I said something else, and... They laughed again, and I thought, oh, good, we're all on the same page. And so then I, you know, I started playing and played four songs and or five songs that I knew and left. And uh, they applauded, and they seemed happy. And so that was my sense of what it meant to play. And then I started getting with other guys around the school that played, and they started teaching me songs. And, you know, have you heard of this guy out of New York named Bob Dylan? <laughs> no, but that sounds kind of interesting. And then they played me the songs, and I was like, ooh, this guy's really good. And have you ever heard of uh, this singer who plays over at the club over there named Denny Esba? No. Oh, you ought to go listen to what he's doing. And have you ever heard of this and this and this? And it was like that. It was just community. We were just singing stuff. And then one woman named Phyllis appropriated the songs of Joan Baez and would sing them. 
and she was kind of the only woman that was around. Well, there were some more women, but she was the only one that sang, and she sang Black is the Color of My True Love's Hair. Oh, God, I remember that song, sure. Yeah, Silver Dagger, and she had this very nice, high, bird-like voice, not quite as pure as Baez, Mm -hmm. and then I listened to Baez records, so I became kind of a folk, Mm -hmm. you know, and playing those folk songs, and I loved the deep, entrenched folk songs like the old railroad songs and the boom chang a boom chang a boom chang songs and Jimmy Rogers and stuff and that was how it started to develop so I would take these guys and I'd say hey why don't we go put on a concert and they would say okay well where would we do that and I'd say well let's go to the park and we'll put on a concert well first time we went to the park they said you can't put on a concert here you don't have a permit mm-hmm. well where do you get a permit well, we go down there okay I'd like a permit for the park okay that'll be five dollars five dollars <laughs> what are you out of your mind well, that's what it costs. We want to use the pavilion. And it was like, pavilion? What's a pavilion? Well, you know, it's the big round thing in the middle. You can use it if you want to. That's what your $5 gets you. Oh, well, that's pretty good. So what can we do in the pavilion? Well, anything you want. You can put a sound system in there, however you want to do it. And is that the stage? Or do you sit on that? Or how does that work? So that's how naive I was. Mm-hmm. But it's not so naive that you can't figure the whole thing out in seven minutes. And so then... I went down there, and I went to the store and bought a keg of beer and put that up, and I sold tickets to it. You know, bring a cup and give me $5, and you can come, we'll sing music, and you can drink beer. Of course, all of that was more or less illegal, except I had a permit. But the permit didn't make it so that I sold beer, so that meant it had to be kind of a private party thing. So it was just invitation only, but went ahead and took five bucks, and I think the first one I ever did, I made money, and I paid all the people that were there that that sang. And they all sang songs, and we all sort of sang together. And this was 50. 59, 60, 61, something like that. So you had enterprising instincts even from the get-go, because we're going to talk about that, too, because you've got genius enterprising instincts. Well, you know what? Again, they're not genius at all. They're native. You have them. Everybody in the room there has them. Yeah, but you're tapped into yours. You listen to yours. Oh, yeah. We all act on them differently, I think, is the better way to say it. And I take your point. It does seem like some people, you know, go out and rock and roll, and other people just kind of sit there and carve ducks. But whatever it is, you know, depends on how you come to it, defines a lot on, on how your life is going to go. And with me, it was because it felt good and because it was fun and because it was uplifting and so forth. And, you know, on a nice warm weekend afternoon with four or five friends who were all playing the guitar and singing together and singing these beautiful old songs and a group of 12 other people, the next thing you know, you got $50. And so that was enough to get going. And that is enterprise. It is but enterprise. But it's not enterprise like capitalist industry. You know, it's, it's different. It's a whole different animal. It is, but it sounds like you were very present in what you were doing. It doesn't sound like you had a big plan, a big scheme of where you wanted to. No. It sounds like you were present no, in everything you were doing. No agenda. It's like, how are we doing here? How does this feel good? Are we all happy? And is this, is this working out okay? And would you say that's something that's carried through for you? Or has it been going from one thing to the next because it feels good? No, you have to be careful not to roll that out too far. It turns from if it feels good, do it, to if it feels good, you're probably pointing the right direction. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, by that, redeem itself. There's got to be more to it than that. There has to be a sense of growth, a sense of peace, a sense of permanence, a sense of being in the present, like you say. Because what happens at that point, when I start to see it move off of those metrics, that's a signal to me, you're just a little bit out of sync here. And that doesn't mean that an answer comes with that, but at least you've identified a problem. So we do the little shows, and uh, people would take money, and we do this next weekend, and the answer is yes or no, depending on where you are at the time. You don't have anything, yeah, we'll do it next weekend, and we'll do it again, and we'll do it again and again, and the next thing you know, we'll be Dr. Pepper. (laughs) And it's no... That's not the way this works. 
That's that doesn't work that way. Now that's not a philosophy of mine. It's not even much of anything. <laughs> that's just sort of internal, natural. And I submit to you, just stop anybody on the street, and they'll say, "Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That's the way I wash the car. That's pretty much it. It's just how you live life. It's the way the life lives us." You know, we're going to more or less have to do what Mother Nature tells us. Well, I think there are people that fight that. I think there are people that try, that set a plan for themselves and they try to adhere to that plan or what they think other people think their plan should be. It sounds like yours was more organic. So how did you get from this place of just throwing it together and putting on a show at the pavilion and selling some beer to writing a hit song? It all just happened in the same place at the same time. It's never been any different. I mean, as I'm talking to you now, I'm still sitting there playing this guitar, eating my tomato sandwich. Well, some, somehow that song got in the hands of the Stone Ponies and got recorded, and that's a pop song. So you were playing this folk music. How did pop start to infuse in your world? Well, I don't know. It just sort of did. These things pop up unseen, you know, entertaining angels unaware. Hmm. And they just start talking to you. Turn left. Oh, what's over there? Don't know. Go look. Those are the sorts of things all of us do all the time. Very, very natural. Mm-hmm. And as it goes on in my life now, is exactly the same way it goes on in your life and is exactly the way it went on in your life when you were eight or three. It's been continuous. It's continuously there. It never has gone away for me. So when I say to myself, well, how did you make that happen? I didn't make any of it happen. I didn't do anything. You sort of fall backwards into it. At least I did. And I've seen a lot of people do the same thing. I'm writing a book, and we're not, I don't want to talk about it, but I'm going to tell you a little piece of it. Okay. When I got money from the monkeys, first thing I did was go to London. London was the center of the world, mm-hmm. the capital of the world. It was to the 60s what Paris was to the 20s. Mm-hmm. And I thought, i got to go over there, and i got to meet the Beatles, and i got to find out what's going on, and I just really want to understand this impulse of art. I'm kind of asking myself the same question you're asking me. You know, Well, how did this happen? Well, how did you get this to do? Mm-hmm. Well, what's the process? Well, what's the way it goes? Well, And then what did you do? And then what did you do? And we can learn if you'll just tell us what you did. No, all wrong. That's mathematics, and that's a different set of philosophies. Or that's a different set of logic, I should say. This is art, and art is life, and life is just leads us where it leads us, and we might just as well get used to it. So for me, it was go to London, see what's going on. It made sense, had the money, took my wife, the woman who sang like Joan Baez, <laughs> and we went over to London. And while I was there, I was all set. I'm going to get in the flash crowd, the dazzle crowd. I'm going to smoke a lot of dope. I'm going to drink a lot of scotch. I'm going to have great meals. I'm going to meet the Beatles. I'm going to meet everybody who's in the fashion world, in the architectural design world, in the art world, and everything that's going on. It's going to be just an incredible thing of just going to make me dizzy. It's going to be so much fun and everything. None of that happens, <laughs> except for I sent Lennon a telegram, and I said, Can I, I'd like to meet you. And he said, come on out and stay at the house. So I did. We became sort of acquaintance friends, and I learned the great English tradition of being a house guest, and he was very accommodating and, and generous and, uh, and and fun. We were the same age, more or less, and we enjoyed each other. We enjoyed each other's time. But it was very laid back. He wasn't doing a lot. He wasn't running around. He wasn't trying to make this happen. Not that I saw. And I spent, you know, three or four days with him there, with him and Cynthia at the time. And what, what our days consisted of was, uh, he said, uh, you know, uh, Ringo and Paul are going to come over. You want to meet him? Yeah. That'd be great. Now, you know, keep in mind that you and I are talking about this right now as if this is something interesting. It's not interesting to anybody listening to this, and certainly not to anybody under 20 years old. <laughs> I don't know. The Beatles and a monkey meeting is kind of interesting. I don't care who you are, when you are. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, but that's not the point I'm making. I'm about to make a different point. The fact that we were popular at the time and we're sort of in the eye of the public, mm-hmm. we also happened to be in the eye of a hurricane, which was 
to say that it was dead calm. And there wasn't any running around trying to make stuff happen. That was out in the wind. That was out where everything swirled and changed. And people that were rolling with the wind were doing great. And people that were walking against the wind were doing bad. And the people sitting in the middle, sitting there at dinner, telling jokes and making puns and so forth, they were doing these unbelievably difficult things to do. They were doing these incredible feats that were feats of poetry and feats of art and so forth. But they were doing it without even thinking about it. They didn't spend a whole lot of time agonizing over it. Nobody was cutting their ear off. It was very, very placid, and I recognized it, and I named it Easy Speed. And from racing cars later in my life and racing around motorcycles and so forth, I learned that champion athletes and champion race car drivers and people who excel have this sense of easy speed. And what it means is you're just working like crazy, and you're going as fast as you can. Somebody comes by, you're going twice as fast, and they're sitting there having a Coca-Cola with their arm out the door, driving with one hand. Mm-hmm. If you play golf and your golf instructor says, hit the ball now and just barely tap it, and if you hit it right, it's going to go bonk and it's going to go a long way, and you do that, and you go, oh, look at that. He says, now, hit it as hard as you possibly can, and you do, and it goes half the distance. That's a lesson you learn from golf. You can learn that from almost any sport. The easier and more natural it is to you, the more power there is in it because it is derived power, the power of the universe. Power of the infinite intelligence, the power of the infinite mind. And it hits us all. We're living with it all the time. You and I are talking in it right now. And the easier it gets, you know, like you said, look, we'll just be like we're just hanging out, we're just not doing anything except having at a deli and we're having lunch and stuff like that. Slow all that back down to, yeah, we're just talking on the phone. And yeah, we're just talking about this stuff. And it may be that somewhere somebody's life is being changed mm-hmm. because they heard something that we said. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing you and I are doing. Mm-hmm. Not us. It's their connection absolutely, with that same infinite mind that you and I are expressing right now. Then we get the phone call and say, hey, man, can I take acid with you? Because that sounds great. <laughs> but it's none of that. It's just, you know, laying down. And easy speed characterized my life from the beginning. I realized that I could not run anybody and nobody could outrun me. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I agree with you. Yeah. And I do think that it's when we kind of just let go and let things happen. And that's when everything worthy happens and trying to control it kind of messes it up. So this was sort of your way was just to be present, to kind of move through things, take invitations. But this amazing stuff was happening to you around you. As a result of your easy speed, you ended up on this incredible television show in the middle of this pop phenomenon. How did that happen? I answered an ad in the in Variety mm-hmm. and went down and auditioned for a part on a television show, and they said, good, you're in. And then we started shooting the show. And did you have any acting experience? Is that something you'd ever done before? Well, not in that level. I mean, I'd been in school plays and at the Dallas Theater Center, you know, weekender things and so comedy was just something, too, that came with easy speed to you, it sounds like, because The Monkees was genius comedy. Yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, it was. Funny, yeah. It was. I just watched an episode a couple weeks ago, and I couldn't believe that it was still funny to me. But it was. It was hysterical. The way it really gets funny is when you take the laugh track out of it. Yeah. The laugh track upsets the easy speed. If I could go back and I could get those original shows and just mm. strip the laugh track out of all of it, I love have it. a whole other life. Absolutely, absolutely. It's whack without the laugh track. But with the laugh track in it, which is laugh now. Okay, laugh now. Mm-hmm. Laugh now. And you go, oh, geez, shut up. <laughs> and if you get rid of that, 
it really gets funny. So that whole monkey's experience for you, like, I didn't know that you hadn't been playing your whole life because you were always presented as the real musician, the one who was really playing, the one yeah, well, who really knew. That was all a lie. No, that was a lie. Peter was the guy that could play, and Mickey and uh, Davey both were, uh, well, Davey was a very accomplished musician, you know, he was a song and dance guy on Broadway. Come I on. saw him, I saw him as the Artful Dodger in, in Oliver when I was a kid. There you go. And so did they create this stuff to be divisive with you guys, that you were this and this one? How did we get this image of you guys this way? Why is that what the takeaway was? Do you know? Couldn't tell you. You've got to get somebody who's got more of a handle on uh, musings and philosophy than I do. Well, so for you on the inside of it, from what I know of you guys, you were the voice of we want to play our own music, we want to play our own instruments, and there's rumors of things flying through a room and anger and drama. What was it for you inside of that? Was the monkey something that you enjoyed doing? Was it fun for you? Yeah, it was a good time. The thing that is missed in this, you put four guys in a room in the 1960s and you're gonna, you've got a band. Mm-hmm. And that's all we were, four guys in a room. But our room happened to have a television screen on one end of it mm-hmm. and concert stadiums on the other end of it and a multi-million selling record distribution system on another side of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we became a band. Why wouldn't we do that? But it morphed because when it first started, they had people playing for you guys, right? And you weren't playing live. Yeah, but that's not a morph. We didn't morph out of that. We didn't morph from some people who couldn't play who did. We just started doing what we did do because we were four guys in a room and we had the opportunity, and we all looked at each other and we said, we, we can do this. Let's just do this. It'll be fun. The show is about a garage band. We are a garage band. Mm-hmm. The show is about a garage band that's out of work. Well, we're not exactly out of work, but we can write songs and we can play and we can do that stuff. Let's do that. Let's do the part of it we can do because of the time. It was the more the times than it was anything else. And the hardest thing for people to seem to get their head around is the fact that just because the show was written and conceived, just because it had 50 people around the television part of it, and just because it had this huge infrastructure, there was at the heart of it, the kernel of it, a spark of life. Mm-hmm. If it had all been a wooden boy, it would never come to life. Wooden boys don't come to life. And old men who pray to fairies that they will are not sane. Wooden boys are wooden boys, but real boys are real boys. And you can dress them up so they kind of look like wooden boys, and they will throw off the wood, and they'll be the good boys. And at the time, that main unit of the band, four people like that, you put them together almost anywhere on the streets of Los Angeles or on the streets of London and to some degree on the streets of New York and very much degree in the streets of San Francisco, and you got a band. Mm-hmm. You may not know it. You may not think it's a band. And then once it starts to act like a band, however you decided you had started it, it's going to be different. And that's what happened to us. So we went through the first couple of records, and they said, we'll put the records out. You just stand up and pretend to play them. I said, well, you don't need to just put the records out. We can play them, too. Mm-hmm. They're easy enough to play. We all write songs. We'll just do it. That can happen. So we did. That was Headquarters, the third album we made. And it was the only album the four of us ever made as a band. Mm-hmm. And it was in its own kind of weird way. I don't mean to use weird mean deviant, but I mean weird in an unusual and unexpected way. It was a real band that came out of it, mm-hmm. a real musical entity that came out of it. And everybody said, how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen because of something false becoming true. It was because it was always true from the beginning, and the true part of it just won out over a period of time. And so what led to the dissolution of the monkeys? How did it end? It didn't. 
As I'm talking to you right now, we have the we have a top ten record, and we're out. You certainly do. Which, by the way, me and Magdalena, and I know what I know. I haven't stopped listening to either one of them. Uh, Good times is just a fan- <laughs> well, it's fa- it's much. fantastic. It's an ama- it's an amazing feat. I can't believe that this is happening all these years later. I think it said. <laughs> I mean, you guys are breaking the charts. It's like the best debut of something 48 years later. I don't even know what they're saying. It's craziness, though. All I know is what I'm listening to. And so what's that experience for you now? Are you enjoying this resurgence? It's, just, it's a guess. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's the same thing. It's, it's, the way, it's the way it's always been. And so are you just kind of letting, being present, doing that easy thing and just kind of letting it evolve and doing as you feel it? Well, of course. There's nothing else to do that I know of. Well, there are people who make plans, Nez. I mean, there are people who have goals. They map it out. They work towards something. I have nothing to say to them. I don't know what to tell them. You know, I wish them well and Godspeed and all possible success. I don't know how to do that. It's really, but you've done some pretty, can we talk, I don't know, this is, if it's okay with you, I believe you told me a story about when um, you were packaging the Civil War, the PBS series. Can you share that story? I don't know what you're, what story you mean. Okay, I recall, and unless I'm making this up, me hearing the story that you were going to package uh, the DVD, you had bought the rights to the Civil War, Ken Burns, the, the, the PBS series, and you were going to package it and you were going to sell them. Is that correct? Do I have that right so far? So far, yeah. Okay, and that you were going to sell it for a certain amount of money. I don't know how much it was, a hundred and something dollars for the box set or whatever it was, and then you went to your marketing people and they said, well, do you know who actually buys these box sets um, are poor women who want to help their children uh, better themselves, right? And so then you ended up selling them for a much more reasonable price, like $19.99, I think is what you told me. And then you sold a gazillion of them. And um, you've done all these things that don't seem to relate. And yet it seems that everything you touch has been successful. I don't know if it's because your instinct causes you to listen to certain people or when to bend or when to get advice or if you're being driven on your own course towards this path. Have you ever hit a wall? Is there something that you ever tried that didn't work? All the time. And when that happens, that's when I back off. It doesn't take you very long. You know, you bang your head against something. You go, okay, that didn't work. Can you give me an example of something you wanted or tried that didn't work? Well, there's, you know, I'm sitting on three scripts and I'm sitting on a whole bunch of products and stuff that came to nothing or at least didn't come to anything that I expected it to. Mm. And once I take my plan out of the mix and I try to understand what the larger scheme of things is, I, I do better because it takes away the pressure. I don't feel the tension and the anxiety. Mm-hmm. I don't start to think, where am I going to get the people for this? Where am I going to get the money for this? How am I going to make this happen? Oh, did you hear that so-and-so held up and they love it? And they're going to say, oh, no, they call it. It's not going to happen now. All that stuff which just spins around in your head. And some places, more than others, geographically, but nonetheless, everybody deals with it. A potato farmer and, you know, the head of international distribution, they all struggle with it. And calming that frame of mind, getting rid of that frame of mind, is always my first focus. And I don't have an exact program to point to. The words that I can use are prayer and meditation. Mm-hmm. But it means being calm, having trust, holding your hands, recognizing that something is going on. I mean, I'm not saying anything here that you haven't heard a thousand times, but if you can actually find the place in your own central stillness where that's going on, your own center of the hurricane, your own easy speed, then things happen around you, and there's no way to make it up. You can't make it up. You can't figure it out. You don't know 
But if you start planning it, you start laying it out like you're taught to do by people who say they know, then you come to nothing. And that's always been the case with me. I mean, I'm only saying it now dogmatically because I don't really have you know, a data set that will validate what I'm saying to you. It's all anecdotal. Mm-hmm. But in my direct experience, to the degree that I'm willing to let whatever's taking care of me take care of all of it, I mean, I don't cause myself to breathe. I don't cause myself to think. I exist at the standpoint of effect. What am I the effect of? Don't know. Couldn't tell you. Well, that's an interesting question to try to answer. How would you answer it? Don't know. Couldn't tell you. I exist there at the standpoint of effect. I am in the world of effect. So what I need to do is trust whatever causes this effect. You've got to trust the pilot when you get on the plane. And so you trust the pilot. Who's the pilot? Don't have a clue. Well, what does the pilot think about this? Don't know. Don't know the pilot. I'd like to know the pilot, but the important thing for me is just keep this focus on the easy, centered stillness of it all, be happy with my place in the natural order of things, and to maintain my confidence in the omnipotence of good. It's hard to do when, you know, 50 people die in a nightclub or thousands of people die in an airplane crash in a building. It's hard to do, but that's the only effort that I know of that's worth making. Well, I think it can also be challenging as a young, passionate person. It sounds like you've had this kind of going for you all along. It's taken me many years to come to that thinking. Well, a lot of it's retrospect. You look back and you say, I was working so hard for this and that didn't happen. And then somebody, an angel, will tap you on the shoulder and say, yeah, but this happened. And you look and you go, oh, yeah, that's right. And so, can you see the perfection of it? Yeah. You know, back in the 60s when everybody's dropping acid and you hit one of those moments, it was immediately a Zen burger. It was immediately one with everything. It was like, wow, this is so cool. And the acid would wear off and you'd move along. But what it showed everybody at the time was that we're all in that same space. It's always there. I don't have any message to put out, but that's the one I live by. I get up in the morning and I say, good morning. Who am I talking to? Don't know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not schizo. (laughs) But I know that I am sitting here at, at the standpoint of something, and I'm not doing it. So I have to let whatever is doing it just do what it does. And it's been my experience, and I look back from the times when I was a passionate, ambitious, it's got to be this way kind of person, I realized, oh, no, all that stuff was just nonsense. I didn't get anything for that. Okay, so that's exactly what I'm kind of asking is, like, what shifted that thinking? Because you were that guy. It is always there. It doesn't come from somewhere. It doesn't show up in the nick of time. It's nothing one develops. It is our nature. Well, but you're saying you were this young, passionate guy who wanted something, but now you're in acceptance of things as they flow. Those sound like two different guys to me. It's always been the same. Somebody at a dinner party the other night, it was just one of those cracks that somebody makes, and I thought it was funny. He said, I want to know how old everybody is at this table. And he looked at me and said, how old are you? I said, 24. Turned to the guy next to me and said, how old are you? And she said, 22. Turned to another guy and said, how old are you? He said, 18. And everybody had this age that was like, you know, a third of what we actually were at the table, because we're all in our 70s. Mm-hmm. And it made us all laugh, because we realized what we carried around inside of us. And it was the same thing. I mean, when you move below that into childhood, and people in childhood, they don't carry around an agenda. Talk to a four-year-old. They got no agenda. Can I have a cookie? That's it. That's as far as it goes. And what do I do if I don't get a cookie? I throw a temper tantrum. Yeah. Does that get the cookie? No. Not always, but sometimes it does. Well, what's always there? Always there is just now. 
I don't want to go Deepak on you, but some of that's going on. Who's the other guy? Etoile? Etoile? Ecartole, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. No, I don't mean to go that way on you because, you know, that's fine. He's covered that base. It's not quite the same with me. You know, it's not like be here now, but there is a presence that's been there since I've been conscious that is still here, and it's exactly the same presence. Nothing happened. A lot happened, though, in your life while nothing was happening, while nothing was shifting. A lot in the world shifted because of you. You've had quite an impact, not only on the world, on me, actually. We'll talk about this. It's a little personal story. But when we first connected um, around Women Who Write, my literary salon, you were going to have me come up to Big Sur and do it at the Henry Miller Library. You said, well, yeah, you'll take this thing where you work with writers and you help writers. And I said, well, no, I don't help writers. I put on a show. And you said, well, no, but you help people with their writing. And I said, no, I really don't. And at the time, I didn't. At the time, I was presenting writers. And that thing you said to me worked on my subconscious. And it wasn't a conscious thing. But somehow, as a result of that, we are in the midst of the 41st monthly Women Who Write Writers Daily Challenge. We've had workshops for that same amount of time. And somehow, I started working with writers on their writing as a result of you saying that without my even realizing I was doing it. So this not doing anything has impact. The fact that you made music videos before they even had a name and won the first Grammy for one and created what became MTV. I mean, like, you've shifted the world with your easy way without, it seems, intention to do so, just allowing things to happen. But they've had tremendous impact. Do you still do those uh, salons in your house? I do. Do you charge for them? I do. So it sort of happens that that's the way it's worked out. You can say the same thing I'm saying. And you picked it up a little bit from the seminar, the test thing that you did up here in Big Sur. Mm-hmm. But basically, it just continues to grow on its own. And it's taking care of you, right? I mean, and you're having a good time, right? Having a great time. Love it, yeah. Is it taking care of me? Well, that's not, that's another story. I have a daughter about to go to college, so not so much. It's a lot to be grateful for. It's a lot that's to a, be yeah, grateful for. Yeah, that's a lot to be grateful for. It's a lot to be grateful for. And bigger than me, it, it feeds a lot of people. It's of service to people. I mean, it's a community of people. Yeah, you're talking. That's it. That's all we're talking about. That's the only place you got to get to is just that acknowledgement that you and I live in the arms of that universal embrace, taking care of us, same way it's taking care of us all of our lives, all of what we know of our lives, even in the darkness of mortality, takes care of us. I like that, and I get more and more confidence in it. I probably had more confidence in it when I was two than I do now, but I knew I wasn't battling this long train of material and mortal past will drag up But at two, there's just kind of simple, you know, just acceptance of the way things are. And now at uh, however old I am, 75 or something, you know, it's different because I'm dragging this stuff around a little bit. But it's still the same center point. You got it. What's in your world now that is giving you that thrill, filling your soul like the music did, and I assume continues to? I know you have Video Ranch. What are you doing with that these days? Well, there's been some technical problems to solve. And also, my wife and I went through a divorce. She disappeared behind a wall, and so then I had to pick those pieces up. That was the last five years. Separation is very abnormal. and you know, Connections and togetherness is very normal. Mm-hmm. So when you hit those separation things, dealt with that a little bit, and then there's a whole stack of technical stuff that uh, has piled up in Video Ranch, which knows I'm solving those problems. But the number one thing I do is write. I love writing this book. It's my third book. I've started a fourth, and so I, I think, you know, I love the writer's life. I love, you know, to 
of getting up in the morning at 5.30 and starting to write and writing for four or five hours and then having a phone call with somebody who's got a radio show and then writing for another three or four hours. Are you writing fiction? Uh, yeah, one of them is. When I did Long Sandy Hair of mm-hmm. Neptune Zamora, which was the first novel that I wrote, I wrote it in hypertext, which was the early language of the Internet. So I was able to do a bunch of stuff that still exists. And one of the things that exists are the Little Horse Lectures, which goes to one of the characters in the book. And so that's now fleshed out into mostly a full-page book. And I write it a little bit every day. I write these lectures and the events that go on around this particular mythical town in the Southwest. But I just love writing so much fun and it's relaxing for me. Is this something that you started to do in recent years or is it something you always did? I mean, I know you always wrote songs. Yeah, well, writing songs, I never had the skill set and still don't to write prose and fiction and stuff. That's one of the difficulties of not having an education. You just don't get the teachings that you can really use when it comes to craft and so forth. I've been having a publisher now for the first time, Random House. I've got real public, I got a real editor and I got Fabulous. real distribution and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that makes it a lot easier. But I wrote Neptune in the mid-90s. That was my first novel that I wrote. And then I wrote The America Gene in uh, early 2000. And then I wrote uh, this book uh, in, in 15. And uh, The Little Horse Lectures, I'll put that together next year. But all of this is subject to just completely changing. <laughs> you know, and I get up and find myself on Mars somewhere. I think that the impact that you had on me with Women Who Write had a little bit of an influence on you, too. As I recall, that was the first time you'd played out in a while up in Big Sur, and you did something really beautiful for us. You did some spoken word before each song, and then I saw you play again after that in New York at the winery, and you had kept that as a part of your performance, which was amazing. Is that something you've continued to do? I recorded all that, called Movies of the Mind, and I took the best ones, put them together in a show, which is now an artifact, lives as a CD. But by the time I got to the end of doing it, it was no longer satisfying. Mm. And I thought, this is, this is starting to cloy. But that happened. That's not a sign of anything going bad. It's just a sign of moving to the next stage. And I'm not 100% sure what the next stage is. I certainly didn't think at the time that the next stage was going to be a hit monkeys record. <laughs> yeah. I never called that. Are you still playing your own music? Are you still writing new music for yourself? Oh, yeah. I write all the time. Writing is just, I love to do it. It seems like I'm built for it. I hate to say that because just as sure as I do, I'm going to end up getting offered this <laughs> unbelievably attractive job as a bus driver. <laughs> and I'll just have to go do it. Okay, so while you're being a bus driver, I have a question for you, Nez. I have a guilty pleasure, which is Cheetos, and I've decided that I want to ask what yours is because you're iconic, a little intimidating to someone like me. I tend to judge my insides by your outsides. Look at what you've accomplished. Oh, my God. So your humanity, I think, is what ultimately connects you most to everybody else. We get it in your music. We, we get it in your writing. Come on, tell me that you're human. What do you do when nobody's looking? What's your guilty pleasure? I'm going to be another terrible interviewee because I don't have one. I'm an open book. I don't have anything like I have nothing that I keep hidden. I mean, I don't eat any food that I'm embarrassed to eat in front of people. Well, no, mine isn't hidden. My head's in a bag of Cheetos on Facebook. It's not hidden. I'm open well, about it. Well, why do you it. call it a guilty pleasure? Well, because in this day and age, we know about health and we know that it's filled with calories and it's got bad fats. And it's not like the best thing I can be putting into my body, but it's something that gives me joy that I continue to do because it's something that gives me pleasure, even though I know it's probably not the best thing for me. Oh, no. no I don't, nothing like that. The minute that shows up, I think, this is probably not a good thing to be doing. I just stop. Really? 
<laughs> I've seen you eat potato chips. Yeah, and shit. really. I'm sorry. I mean, I don't do drugs, and I eat any food that I want to eat. Yeah. But I don't want to eat that much food. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I like Cheetos too, but I don't feel it's a guilty pleasure. Do you exercise? Do you work out at all? No, I don't lift a finger. I just go on about life. That's plenty of work. Go on about the mortal life, and and I hate to be such a dud, but you know, I just don't. I don't have anything like that. Okay. All right. Well, that's honest and fair. So we'll just. Check off humanity here. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, inhuman. <laughs> no, hardly. Break out human and put immortal. How's that? I like that. Well, you actually will be immortal. You've left such a body of work that, uh, yeah, you kind of are. Well, I thank you so much, Niz, for taking this time and chatting with us, chatting with me. I wish you the best with this. Are you enjoying this? Well, I don't know yet. This was my first one. You don't really know yet. Uh, Yeah, I don't know yet. You're a little tough nut to crack there, Niz. I don't think you're going to be the easiest interview that I'm going to have. Yeah, you've got the different drummer, all right. But I thank you very much, and I'm excited for what's happening with you, and I'm excited to watch it unfold, and I'm enjoying listening to it, and I hope to see you. Are you going to be um, hitting the road a little bit? I saw a Skype in New York happen. You performed with the monkeys. Well, we're talking about coming down and doing the Pantages, and they're going to do that at the end of September, so I think I'll probably do that. But other than that, well, I don't have any. I've got to get this book delivered, and I'm in the final edit stages of it. Well, cool. Well, I hope I find a seat the Pantages that day. Yeah, well, you will. Thanks, Nez. Well, all right. I have witnesses. I have yeah. witnesses sitting right here. They heard that. <laughs> thank you. Sure. Well, thank all you right, so much. Good luck with this. Thanks, Nez. Bye. So, Justin, tell yes. me I'm not the only person on the universe that has a guilty pleasure. Do you have a guilty pleasure? Uh, I mean, we all do, I think. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I mentioned Tinez. Mine, mine is Cheetos. And so listen to this. So Burger King has just announced that they are coming out with a Mac and Cheetos. And what it is is it's 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 a Cheeto with macaroni and cheese on the inside, because Cheetos or Mac and cheese by themselves is not enough. And so it, I guess what it is is kind of like a cheese stick rolled in Cheeto flakes with mac and cheese. And, and so even for me, the Cheetos lunatic, that is disgusting beyond words. I don't know. Maybe it'll be fantastic. I'm, pro- I'm probably going to have to try it. Okay, so for you, is, is, there, is there something that like calls you that you know you feel guilty about but that you indulge in anyway? Something that comes off the top of my head right now Yeah, would be uh, kind of like those B movies, like sci-fi B movies, hell or whatever, yeah, you know, like uh, Sharknado, all that kind of stuff, whatever. But I personally don't feel bad myself, but I feel bad watching it with others because I don't <laughs> think they actually enjoy them. But uh, I, I have a lot of fun. Do you make so. your wife watch that with you? Yeah, she, uh, she yes. sits through it with me. So. <laughs> so your guilt is really for somebody for else's somebody else. experience of your pleasure. Exactly. All right. Well, that works for me. So you see, I'm not the only one. Just because Nez doesn't feel guilty about anything, but you know, he is not a mere mortal like the rest of us souls. Anyway, thanks for making me feel more normal, Just. You've been listening to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. We'll be here every Tuesday night, 6 o'clock Pacific Time, 9 Eastern Time, 8 Central. And yes, there are, Justin just reminded me, you can find us at at Vicki Abelson on Twitter, at Vicki Abelson on Instagram, Vicki Abelson on the Facebook, and VickiAbelson.com on the internet. So say hi, check us out, follow us or me, and I'll send you to Justin, and we'll do that thing there. 
Have a great week. This is Shelley Pikett, and that's my song, Bitch. Well, the one I wrote with Meredith Brooks. I tell all about how it happened in Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, a memoir about my adventures and misadventures on the front line of the songwriting business. You can also hear about Christina, Brittany, Keith Urban, and many more. But my book isn't just about songwriting. It's about passion, pursuit, perseverance for any dream you may have. Confessions of a Serial Songwriter, available on Amazon or a bookstore near you. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. I wrote a book called Don't Jump. Andy Stone is my heroine, and she was addicted to everything pretty much except heroin. Oh my God, oh yes! She just totally captures the excitement of, of rock stars. And famous athletes and famous comedians. Sort of an insider's view from the outside. The warmth and wit of Vicky's writing knocked me out. In, in a good way, not, not like Cosby. Too soon? Vicky wrote a book? Vicki Abelson's long-awaited new book, Don't Jump, is finally here. Don't miss it. Available on Amazon.